As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast after what was an absolutely spectacular Indy 500 for the fourth closest finish in the history of the race. We had Penske winning for the first time since 2019, ending uh, a, a funny drought as Tim Sindrick called it because uh, I guess he was trying to imply that three or three and a half years shouldn't be defined as a drought but there you go uh, also ended uh, team chevy's uh, run which also lasted from from 2019 with with simon pagino's win it was also a uh, shell car winning which was quite poignant because uh, shell have got a 100 percent renewable race fuel for for this year as well so uh, those are kind of the headlines from the the race itself i'm sure you know that joseph newgarden won the race and luckily for you guys at home sat next to me in just a second will be Joseph Newgarden so we'll take a quick pause and head straight over to an interview with Joseph and JR all right Joseph Newgarden Indianapolis 500 winner sounds sounds pretty good man what do you think man it sounds great honestly you know I I've I've already mourned this race to be honest with you guys it's it's a very (laughs) it's a weird way to put it but you know, you just don't know if it's ever going to work out. And I, I'm not, I do not subscribe to the belief system or the criteria that you have to win the Indy 500 to, you know, establish or make your career. Um, and that's not to take anything away from the 500. I, I, I care so deeply about the race just as much as we all do, but it, it's, it's incredibly difficult to win everything has to go perfect and you just don't know if that is ever going to fully line up one day and so for i thought the the best thing that happened to us yesterday was we didn't have anything odd happen and by that i mean we didn't have any bad luck i don't think we got any you know nothing was handed to us really but we didn't have any bad luck it was just a super normal day and we had a fast car and it worked out and it was so cool to to finally be a part of that all right so before we get deeper into the race because there's there's a bunch of stuff that i want to ask you i know you're tight on time so we'll try to like kind of keep it as as uh, as tight as we can but we got to talk about the celebration i want to jack wants to know what the mcdonald's was all about i want to know if there was any tequila consumed at all last night 
Well, you weren't here. You got to be honest with us. You weren't here, Jr. So there was no tequila <laughs> consumed. Thankfully, that's it's like the only. It's the only thing that does not agree with my system is that that form of drinking. Um, uh, the the McDonald's was like spur of the moment. I I I think RP sent out somebody to go get a bunch of McDonald's. Which is amazing. I I love that he likes McDonald's like I do. <laughs> I, I didn't even know that until a couple years ago, and uh, yeah. So he sent up a little order, which was great and um, unexpected, but but so cool. And I didn't even get the CRP after you know Victory Lane. I haven't seen him since, but I'll, I'll see him tonight. What is? I, I mean, I am actually curious because we were out last year. Not not you and I, my wife and I, and kind of the crew were out last year after the race, and Marcus showed up like super late. Like he had so much going on. Can you just talk us through super quick? Like, what does the actual day? We're always, you know, when everybody else, when everybody who hasn't won the race is out wherever they're at, they're always kind of like, where's the winner? Like, when are they showing up? And the winner never shows up for anything until like a minimum of 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night, if they show up at all. What is, what is the actual kind of rest of that day look like? You do the photo shoot, you do the yard of bricks, you do all that stuff, but. Are you straight into media? Are you kicking it with the family? Like, what's what does that kind of post race look like for you? Well, the the actual true post race is so uh, it's long. I mean, you're just there for. Yeah. Right? I was here in the media center for a long time, and then you've yeah, got. Sorry a, about that. That's no, okay. It's all right. And then you're you're doing a million zooms, and you know you're doing newscasts and. Uh, it, it, I think I got out of here and back to the bus at nine o'clock at night. That's when I got back to the bus. So, you know, then you, maybe it was even later. It was probably nine 30 even. And then I finally got a shower. I get done with that about 10 and then you're just 10 o'clock is really when you're starting to talk about what's the plan. So 11 sounds right. <laughs> you know, they you give yourself an extra hour to figure out where you're going to land. Um, and then today has been pretty flat out. I think it started later than what I understood it normally is. I thought 7am was the call time. And this morning was 8 a.m., so that, that wasn't as terrible. And I've been going since 8 a.m., so whatever it is now. What is it, 2 o'clock? <laughs> Not far off yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're six six hours deep into today. There you go. I guess riffing off that a little bit, you've not, you've not had a lot of uh, time to sleep or to actually think about winning the race. But has anything kind of dawned on you in the, in the hours, you know, kind of post-race where you've had any sort of contemplation time that you've thought about, you know, what it means to win this race or, or what it means to you personally or or just, you know, kind of anything that has kind of dawned on you since since the race has finished, really? I, I mean, genuinely, I, I absorbed it pretty quickly and the magnitude of it, it you know, I, I don't know how you couldn't. This, this place hits differently than anywhere else. And, you know, just being in the crowd there right afterwards, I was emotionally drained, you know, trying to, I was getting, I wanted to get out of the car as quickly as possible. I knew exactly where I wanted to go. And just kind of going through that whole thing for 10 minutes, I, I almost wanted to pass out when I got back to the actual track side. Um, and, but it, it's it's absolutely hit me. You know, I, I was almost in disbelief that when I was coming to the line, it was really going to happen. Like, I knew that's the checkered flag. Like, I have a little bit of a gap. We're winning the damn race. I just couldn't I couldn't believe it, it worked out. And, I, and you just feel relief. You know, I, I, I hate that. There's there's so much emphasis put on this singular event, but you really do feel the weight lift right off you. Like it's crazy how true that is. That saying, 
And, you know, today, like I, I got a, it definitely sunk in a little bit more today, getting photos and being on the front straight and, you know, seeing, I was just looking at the track. I mean, I was looking at the track, thinking about the race and, you know, thinking about the whole journey and lead up here and, and all the sacrifice and everything everybody's done to, to get to this point, you know, both personally and professionally within the team. And it's just, it, you know, it's, it's a real treat. I've been this whole month, I've been thinking more about how, how, appreciative I feel to have been in the race for for 12 years and I really mean that you know when you're young I don't think you you understand the magnitude and respect it but you don't appreciate it nearly as much the more years you come here and the more years it breaks your heart I think the more you gain respect for for what it is and and I've had that a lot this year I felt respect for the race and just gratitude not that oh hey I you know if we don't win it I'm just I'm grateful that I was able to be a part of it because in a lot of ways, that's also just enough. Like it's it's super cool to just have been in the mix and like doing this badass event. There's nothing like it on the planet. You know, you guys have had. You know, I, I definitely know what it feels like to, you know, be in equipment that you feel like should be at the front, but you're just not for whatever reason. You know, like you've had a few races these last bunch of years that I think at Penske Racing in particular, looking at it from the outside you know the expectations are higher than what the outcomes have been, whether that's qualifying or just in the race. You know, you've had some things go wrong. You know, you're starting deeper in the field than you think you should. And and the race kind of in on the other side of it to this year, just things not going your way. So you're kind of getting kicked in the gut every, you know, every 50 laps somehow, you know, and getting knocked back another three or four spots and just never really building that momentum. Um, you know, this year just felt different watching the race. Also, I, since you're not on, since you're not on social media as much, I'll tell you what my social media experience was like watching the race for the first time, which was basically after that first caution that Pelot and VK sort of took each other out of the equation. As soon as we came out of that caution, I was on Twitter, I think, and I said, New Garden's going to the front. Like that to me was the, was like the, point in the race that I felt like, all right, you had made quite a bit of progress. You were basically the only guy that had made good progress from say the mid pack up into the top 10 at that point that felt like you had some momentum going your direction at that point. My feeling look, just looking at the car, you know, it, it looked like you guys, you guys were running clean rear wing. Yeah. Like you weren't running. Yep. Yeah. That I was kind of thinking if that car, I was texting some buddies of mine, like watching the race. I was like, if that car gets towards the front in cleaner air, I think it's going to be fast and he's going to have a shot at that. I'm maybe just talk us through what the race felt like for you, like in terms of your momentum going towards the front. You know, you didn't have any major hiccups, like you said. Was there a point that you kind of felt, all right, like, yeah, we're, we are legitimately actually really in this? Yeah, stint stint one. I actually think our our best stint was the first one. You know, we we made the most progress. I think we when we had our first pit stop, so whatever that was, I don't even know what lap, 32, 33. 33. There yeah. you go. Um you know, we basically come out ninth and you're like, Okay, this was a good jump. We went from seventeenth to ninth, we're already ahead of schedule. You know, we want to crack the top ten by lap hundred, be in the top five by you know, 150-ish and make sure that we're in that top three group for, for the finish. And so we were well ahead of schedule, and I felt really good in the car that first in. I'm like, okay, this thing can win. Like, I'm looking out for the tires. Like, 
you know, it's not really falling off aggressively on one axle or the other. Like I feel like my following rate's good. I can hit a number. Like it just felt there on the day. And when you have that in that first stint, you know, that can set your whole day up. You know, we didn't touch the car once. We didn't put, and I kind of actually sort of regret that. Now we probably should have put a little wing in at the end, because <laughs> um, as you know, like Jared, the 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 wing degrades through the race. Like you get all sorts of, you know, debris, et cetera, hitting it, and it, you just naturally lose a little bit of center of pressure. And so I think we probably could have put a touch in, but even without it, it was great. We didn't make one tire pressure adjustment. We didn't touch the wing, and so that thing was rock solid. The other hilarious point to me, um, now looking back on it, is we we did the open test in April. And it was a single day test because of the rain. And I told Luke, I said, if we, if this was race day, at the end of that test day, I said, if this was race day, we are, we are winning the Indianapolis 500. I was so confident in that car. I said, this is the greatest car I've ever driven around here. We came here during the month of May. We never drove that race car <laughs> until Carb Day. It, 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 like we drove the whole month, <laughs> and we we're like. Why haven't we just run this car that we said was going to be the best race car we've ever had? And we left Monday thinking, like, this is so dumb. We're just putting, we copy pasted that setup sheet from the test for carb day, did a few little tweaks as you do, and, uh, and we sent it off. And it was just exactly where it needed to be for the most part to win this race. That's crazy. Um, I mean, it's funny. Like, I, I, I love that. I love that story because. <laughs> It's exactly what happens inside of like every race team. Like, like you know it, you, you know it so well, Jr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As soon as you have something that you like, you're like, well, there's got to be something we can do to make it better. So you can just keep <laughs> screwing around with it, right? You just feel like um, you're like you're not utilizing the time, right? You have so much time here to mess around. <laughs> yeah. Too much time. Um, I have I have a stepbrother's meme in my head right now as you're saying that like there's so much room for activities. Uh, um, can we? Uh, I I guess so. Skipping ahead to the end, Jack and I have agreed that we're we're not going to bug you about restart procedure or any of this stuff or red flags. Um, I just want kind of an inside the helmet view of that final restart. So it all happens kind of fast you're probably getting told over the radio in a hurry, like, okay, this is going to be what we're going to do. It's sort of a, an abnormal way of, you know, running a, a final restart, just straight out of the pits, green flag, you know, one lap shootout. It looked to me to be totally frank. Like you got sort of a terrible jump. Was that, was that true? <laughs> was that part of the plan? It obviously ended up working out perfectly. Like if, if you could, if you knew you were going to have a full green flag lap, you want to make the pass down the back straight, right? So it ended up working out kind of like how you'd want it to. But I, but at the same time, like a, a lot of risk that a yellow comes out before you even get to that point, right? So just talk us through like, what was the plan? Were, were you just totally in reaction mode at that point? You know, what, what was your sort of, what was going through your head for the first, la- you know, we'll call it the until you made the pass basically. Yeah, so I I felt like the exposure point for me was the third position. You know, that's where I made a big gain on on our first red flag was I was sitting yeah, in third. Yeah, right. And it really just depends on how tightly stacked you are in those first three cars. I I was worried that if I was too close or I got too good of a jump on Marcus that, you know, who was behind me? Santino? Yeah. Yeah, it was Santino. Um, Santino. Well, and he was just sleeping in the end. When I knew he that. I knew if anyone was gonna be as aggressive as possible, it would be him. And so I was very worried right. about being exposed to to his attack 
on the front straightaway. But it's a fine balance, right? Like if I also if I leave too much to Marcus and Santino's really tight to me, then he could also just get by me and then go by Marcus on the back straight. So I I I'll say this. I meant to I meant to leave a little bit of a gap to Marcus, but it turned out to be bigger than I anticipated or tried to do. So he did get a little bit of a jump on me. And then I, as soon as I saw that my gap was fine to Santino, I thought, okay, no problem. Yes, this could go yellow at yeah. any point and could be over, but I can't control it. So I'm just going to, and I stopped snaking too. I was like, I'm just going to set my run up. This is going to be all off T2. That's ha- that's what needs to happen. I got as tight to him as I could. You know, he snaked left, had plenty of a run, cleared him coming down into T3. And I really thought at that moment, I'm like, this is pretty much in the bag. And... So I, because I, because I even chopped right in front of him, not aggressively, but I knew he was going to have to hit my wake in three with with me having good acceleration. I thought there's no way he's going to be tight on me through three four, and then I get I get through the short shoot and I'm like, you know what? He he hung tough in three, like he stayed really tight, and I'm like, dude, he's got a really good run. And so I'm coming through four and I'm like, shit, he's he is very very close. So I'm like I'm going to go as aggressive as possible and I just I went you know it's within the rules. We all know the rule. They are not policing the line. I said I'm going to go all the way to the interior wall as much I'm not giving this race up like I'm in the lead. I went as far left, far right and then one last to the left and then I saw it was enough and then it was just a huge sigh of relief because I couldn't believe how much momentum he still had when I when I went past him. I thought that would be clean and easy, but it, it really he could have gotten it back Almost like by the line. I, I think he was closer than anybody would have anticipated. What does the what does the result mean for you and your team? Because a lot of this result has been, you know, in the aftermath. Of course, you've been talked about a lot. Roger's been talked about a lot. Um, even Tim to a certain extent. But I guess you've gone through a, a kind of weird period where you've had two engineers in two years now. I guess some some people on the outside of of question what's kind of gone on with your team and, and what's been going on in the background. And and you all the way through that have stayed. You know, really supportive of your team and and shown a lot of belief in them, whether that's in public or or privately. I know as well. So, I guess what does it mean for you to not necessarily prove to people what the team can do, but but show that you were capable of doing that performance and that the the kind of changes that have happened behind the scenes in the past few years haven't stopped you from being the team that can win the Indy 500. Yeah, I think and you know, there's two answers from my side for that question. For, first off, you know, I've I've felt this pressure that I you know I, I don't. I don't think we've needed to. We've we've been, you know, as a team collectively on the two car, we've won a lot of races over the last seven years. And so, you know, I don't think we have been failing at our job or our process. But when I come to Indy, I just feel like, you know, I'm like on the chopping block every time I'm here. You know, you, 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 I'm driving with Tim Sindrick on my car. I'm, I'm driving for Roger Penske. And you just have this sense that like, okay, like you only have so much time to deliver. And it, I shouldn't have to feel that. I don't think so. Like when I look back on it in retrospect, like you should, there's nothing that says that you should feel that way, but you do. And, and so I've had this, this definite, definite pressure from that side that's been building, but on the team side, it's impossible for me to hide the utmost belief that I've had in this group that's around me. I mean, I, I have known, I've just known this whole offseason. I'm like, just wait, these guys, this crew, they will be excellent. They will be so excellent. We will win so many races together. I know it's possible. And it was hard for me to not conceal that. You know, most people would just kind of hold that in and go, okay, well, I'll sh- we'll show them. 
but I just wanted to tell people about it because I know <laughs> how true it is. And look, I think yesterday was very you know vindicating for that. It it, it validated all of my belief and. You know, everyone should take a lot of comfort in it because they deserve it. They're super good at what they do. Um, we got a rock solid team across the board, not just one individual. You know, we could name people out, but it, it takes everybody. And Caitlin Brown seems like the obvious one to kind of point out, just based on the fact that she's the the first female to ever go over the wall and, and win the five hundred. Like that's you know, dude. And she's a, said <laughs> she's a badass. Like it's cool she's a girl, but she's just really good. <laughs> like I, she, she doesn't flinch either. Like I, I remember thermal. I slid on my very first hot stop at the end of the test when we were practicing pit stops and I about took her out and she didn't even, she didn't even flinch dude. And she still finished the tire change quicker than two of the other guys <laughs> on the team. I'm like, okay, this, this girl's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, she's, she's amazing. And, uh, so I'm so proud to have her on team, but yeah, like you said, everybody's just, everybody's killer on the group. All right. So I guess the obvious, well, I want to know how, how special was it for you to be able to celebrate with the little man in the house. Like, does that change your, like when, if you think about a scenario where you won this like three years ago or something like before that was, you know, where you guys were at, like how big of a difference is that to you? Especially when the the first question you get when you have a child from people like me is how's that going to change how you race and all that kind of stuff. Like that's just the automatic question well, so that people I, and get. I, so, and I actually want to jump in on that because the last time we talked to you, we talked a little bit about that last, well, maybe it wasn't the last time we talked to you, but last summer or something, we talked to you about, you know, having, having Coda around yeah. and, and I had asked you about that. And I think you took it, you took it to mean what Jack just said, which was like, you know, that there's this, you know, whatever that people say, Oh, you know, you lose a 10th for every kid kind of thing. I actually, I, I want to, go back to that because I felt like my sense of it for you and obviously now I have now I have one and so I can say this from my perspective that but even just watching you and and you know we text and we talk at you know kind of off record and whatever my sense was like no I think this is this is making Joseph even more focused kind of in a way like this is somehow streamlined all of the things that that he's got going on that he puts into being a race car driver and and maybe that's not everybody but that was that was how i felt like it was going on with you that's definitely how i feel about you know my life now is like oh like not like oh you need to get your act together because now you've got a kid but just this kind of naturally occurring like oh i'm i'm actually even more ambitious to do the things that i want to do now um just talk us through like what that experience is like just to give you a second to to think about it. I, I would totally agree. I think it it forces you to sort through your own shit in a lot of ways, you know, to put it bluntly. Like and that can mean a lot of different things for different people, but you know, whatever it is that you have going on, like it it really forces you to focus in on what what do I, what do I need to organize in my life and and it does absolutely motivate you. I like not only just the organization and making sure I've got everything sorted out, but I'm, I'm really motivated to do the best that I can and to, you know, to be the best version of myself for, for my family. And it's, it's a perspective that you just can't fathom until you actually have it. And it's amazing how true it rings. Like people can tell you about it all the time. I, I heard that from other people too, that had kids and I'm like, just couldn't relate to that in my mind whatsoever. And then it happens and you go, okay, I get it now. Like this, this effect has happened to me. So, you know, to answer the bigger question, like it, it just hasn't, 
it's had zero effect on on my racing world in in you know a pure competition standpoint like i i don't feel slower i don't you know i don't i don't feel like i don't want to take risks or i don't want to be as bold as i was in the past etc it's 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 really no different like just my process has been you know really dialed in if anything a lot more um and having him there you know to 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 answer the other question was incredibly special uh, you know you had him on the on the driver uh, uh, intros as just well just everywhere <laughs> up on stage like I was like, dude, you're you're not gonna remember this, but this is so cool. Like, like you're, this, it was it was amazing for me. I was yeah. like, this is so cool for you. I can't wait to look back on it. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. Like, it's very heartfelt. You know, as as a father, it's just it it warmed my heart. The last question here is, you know, what's next? Are you are you in like? I want I want to see you go kick some ass at Detroit because everybody that wins the 500 seems to always have an off weekend in Detroit. I don't want to jinx that for you, but. Like, I, I would agree with you. Where's your where Where's your head at now? Yeah, I, do, I don't want Moving the IndyCar like or sorry, I don't want the Indianapolis 500 hangover. You know, which is yeah. is is a big topic. If you win the 500, it's like you're gonna yeah you're guaranteed to have a disastrous Detroit. Yeah, I would love for that. I, we also can't afford that. We're not in that good of a position <laughs> points wise. Like. And Luke called it. We talked. We you talk, guys we probably talked about this, this ahead of time. It's like the one. The, as soon as they <laughs> change the double points, you're like, you go. You know, somebody, somebody that really needs double points will end up winning the Indy 500. And Ashley has made a prediction, which I hope does not. I told her I, I'm going to make sure this doesn't come true. But she's get. She's like, <laughs> I told you, you're you're going to win that race, and you're going to have needed those double points at the end of the year. And I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that that does not happen. I will be so mad. <laughs> Uh, I was, I'm with you guys. I'm so supportive. I don't even care. You know, it didn't, we, we needed the double points, but I'm very supportive that we went back and it should always be single. And yeah, we've got to be good at Detroit because, you know, I think qualifying, if you look at anything points wise, we sort of washed this weekend because we were so bad in qualifying, you know, and there's 12 points on the line just to be in that top group and to look at someone as good as Alex Plow, you can't let that guy just be that consistent that often. He's just going to walk away from you in a championship. So we've, we've really got to reestablish ourselves and, you know, focus in because we're not in some rosy position right now. We're, we're, we're happy. We're riding high, but you know, we got to lock back in if we want to get to the finish of this thing. Do you feel less worried about the, the championship? Maybe less worry is not the right way to put it, but you, I guess you'll get what I mean when I lay this out. But the, when you've left Indy in the past and you've been so disappointed and so I think heartbroken is word you've used and stuff like that after you've, after you've left and not won the race, the only thing you can then go and do is try and win the championship. Like you, that's yeah. got to be the, immediately the next focus is like, how do I turn this around? Let's go and win the championship. Whereas now you've just won the Indy 500. You've got all this media stuff to do this week, and then you're going straight to Detroit. So, uh, I, I guess does that take any kind of burden off in in that sense? Like any less pressure in that in that way? I, I think it does, but I also don't want to fall into the trap of that. Yeah. You know, I think people, if you win the 500, it's it's a good year regardless. And I, I just don't I don't want that to be you know what we rest on. You know, because for me, the championship is so significant. It, it, it takes so much for the entire year and the consistency and the, the versatility that everyone has to have. Like, I, I don't want us to fall into the, the comfort trap where we're, you know, we're not hungry still to, to go after the championship. Um, you know, it would probably soften the blow, but I just having, having finished second the last three, three years in the row in this championship, I, I don't know that this could soften it enough. If we finish second again for a fourth year in a row, I'm going to be pretty pissed. So, you know, we've, I think that just puts emphasis on the fact that we've got to really focus in and like, you know, not, not lift off the throttle here because of this. 
Well, thanks for joining us, Joseph, uh, and, and thanks for winning the Indy 500 so that we didn't have to have JR's midget race as the best thing that happened over the last weekend. Thank you, boys. Great job, JR. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back. Sorry for Joseph's slightly uh, husky voice there. I think he's been talking for about 20 hours straight. I think GR said it's pr probably been by now. So um, very happy that Joseph joined us on the pod uh, so soon uh, after his victory. And uh, is just even immediately after the race, you could tell he'd really kind of processed the whole win, you know, immediately and just kind of got into some really deep topics about his kind of mindset, where he was at and uh, what the result meant to him, his team, his family. Um, he kind of broke down in tears in the in the press conference um, at, at the end after the race um, when he was asked about Ashley and what it meant for him to, to win the 500 um, with and for his wife, I guess you, is probably the best way to put it. Um, and he got really emotional talking about that and, and, and what it had meant for him to, um, I guess probably felt like he was rewarding Ashley a little bit for all the things that she puts with, you know, d deals with for him off the track and, and stuff like that. So that was really cool and really nice to see a, a really personal side of drivers when sometimes you just get to see them put the helmet on or a microphone's kind of stuck under their under their nose after a race or, or something like that. So that was really cool. Um, JR, you were teammates with Joseph, obviously. Um, what do you remember from back then about his, you know, the way he goes about things? And was it like immediately obvious to you that, he was like a future Indy 500 winner in waiting or um, do, do you think that there, there has to be a bit of kind of experience gained and, and sometimes sometimes drivers just do need that extra bit of time to, to, to be prepared to win the 500, I guess? Well, I'd put it this way, that the thing that always struck me about Joseph, and so this was not necessarily at Indy, but just being around him, looking at his data, being around, the you know, watching how he went about things, even just looking at the way that he did things inside the car, you know, when your teammates, you have sort of unique insight into what somebody's, what somebody's actually physically doing when they're driving the car and, and how much that, the thing that always stood out to me was how adaptable he was in different situations and how naturally that came to him just to do something different in a braking zone just because he, you know, he had a sense maybe, or, or had some kind of, you know, you almost call it sort of a sixth sense, like, you know, this, this sort of feeling for the wind or the track being different on that one lap for that, for, to, to nail that qualifying lap or something that, you know, racing can become, you can be really good. You can be a, uh, pulse sitting, um, 
race-winning IndyCar driver with a much more mechanical view of things than that and without having quite that degree of adaptiveness, I guess I'd say. And so that was just always something like that will be forever. Probably the thing that I remember about being teammates with Joseph was just seeing those little things that stand out like, man, that's that's kind of a next level thing to just have that innate sense that you needed to do something frankly, kind of bizarre or different to be able to extract a little bit more out of a particular situation on track. And so to answer your question more directly about the 500, he, when we were teammates, you know, we were, it was myself and Ed and him, you know, Joseph, obviously this is his 12th Indy 500. You know, I had my 12th last year, but earlier in our careers, you know, I had been building up when you, when you've done four or five and the other guy's only done three or four, that's a much bigger difference in terms of the experience level that you have to kind of depending on how those races go. Um, it felt very much at that time. And obviously Ed was another step ahead of both of us in terms of how many he had run. And that was in, in that period of time where he was really, truly a favorite coming into the race for a number of years in a row. ECR was, was kind of building up that, positioning as being one of the teams that was that was going to be able to go kick ass uh, at the speedway and so i guess i say all that just to say at that time when we were teammates i i you know this is not trying to be arrogant about it or whatever but i felt like ed and i were frankly the guys that were within the team kind of favored to potentially be going and winning the race but during that period of time i absolutely saw that joseph had everything everything that we had that was required to go out and do it. And that over since from then to now, everything that he's done at team Penske, the number of race wins that he's racked up over that period of time, the, the fact that you've seen this progression of his, the fact that the attitude that he has, has also evolved. I think that's just, that's when I look at, Scott Dixon, when I look at Joseph Newgarden, these guys that we just think of as being in these in the absolute highest echelon of competitors, I'd throw Alex below into that group at this point. They just have like a a natural tendency that's just built in to be learning and getting better all the time. You know, Scott Dixon never stops figuring out how to do things a little better than he did the last time. He's not, these guys are not reliant on having the best car in the field. It's just not their attitude about how they show up to, to the racetrack, let alone to race day. And so I think from that perspective, um, you know, I've known for a long time that Joseph is a guy that absolutely has all the tools to go execute. And that if he doesn't on a particular year, that he'll be better the next time he shows up. I've got nothing to add because I've never been Joseph Newgarden's teammate uh, and that's probably a good thing for any of the teams that he's driven for and the rest of the world as well. So we'll move on quickly to the, the red flag situation because that is the one that kind of drew the the main uh, level of conversation at the end of the race. Uh, Marcus Ericsson was not very happy. He thought it was a bit unfair and I think he even used the word dangerous to describe um, the ending. So um, if you've not watched the 500 yet, please go and watch the highlights before listening to the rest of the podcast because we're not going to go into... We've not got time to go into excruciating detail for all 33 cars of, of what happened in this race. So go back and watch the finish. But just as a recap, um, you know, the red flag came out at the end there with, with two laps to go, which meant that the only way to basically start the race and run a race lap was to go out of the pits and immediately start the race on the next time by, which is not a, 
uh, a common thing. I think Marcus and Alexander Rossi as well was another person who said that they'd never seen that happen before. Um, uh, there was some comparisons to like Abu Dhabi in 2021 in F1 as well, made online by some people. Um, I guess I'll lay out where I stand, JR, and I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this, so I'll, I'll hand it over to you. But um, generally, the first thing is I don't, there's nothing in the rules that don't allow for that to happen. Um, the the one change that I would recommend is that it, that should be put in the rules that it's that that they have the, the you know the, the specific number of laps that they um, have or or can restart a race by. I think it would help everyone if that was stated clearly in the rules. Um, the, the argument you get there is always like overcomplicating a rule book, which is kind of the you know some of the things that lead to something like 2021 Abu Dhabi happening. But I don't necessarily think that, that would be a an issue with interpretation or anything if you wrote that in the rules. So th that would be my first recommendation is that, you know, they, they should just pop that in the rule book for next year just so that it's very clear to everyone that can happen because someone like Marcus Ericsson who's just lost the 500 based on that decision is thinking about 2020 when the, the, the race was, you know, cautioned and, and then red flag with, or no, it wasn't red flag, was it? The caution was five laps to go. Um, so there's like precedent for the race finishing under yellow flag, I guess, in, in, in the past um, with with more like fewer laps remaining. So um, I guess all that's to say is the that writing it in the rule book removes any issue of precedent or what's happened before in the 500. That, that then is immediately void and doesn't really matter. I guess the other thing is the safety thing is a lot of people have talked about. And for me, I think it's really important when things like this happen to consider that and think about it and analyze it and work out if there is something we can do that makes these drivers safer and makes things better for for everybody but i'm not particularly sure that there is like a a bigger safety element here than than anything else that happens in a in a kind of a pit stop scenario in indycar because w when you have an outlap i think it's important for people to remember that there's no tire warmers in indycar so they're, they're on cold tires anyway when they go out of the pits so you know at, at the end of the if we compare it to a normal pit stop in the race they're, they're coming in they're filling with fuel so the car's gonna be heavier they're on cold tires and then are absolutely blitzing it out of pit lane along the apron to come back onto the track. Uh, how fast are you going when you come back onto the track after a stop at Indy? Is it like 150, something like that, maybe? Faster or? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I mean you're you're entering the back straight at like you know 180. Yeah. I mean, you're almost you're almost up to speed by the time you get to turn three. Yeah. And then you're joining potentially a train of cars that are going faster than you. So there's a there's a kind of merging element to that that's quite dangerous if if something goes wrong there. Um, and you've got more fuel in the car whereas the, the end we had yesterday obviously no one's filling the tank for that you know it's one lap to <laughs> i mean they can't put fuel links it's a red flag right but they're they're already like at the end of the race that there's not a lot of fuel in the cars they're putting cold tires on like they would have done anyway if they were in a pit stop and then they've gone out and had time to warm the tires up in a kind of relatively safe manner because they're going out onto a it's not a live track they're going out onto and then they start the race so i guess that's where i'm at um i can understand why marcus would be upset with how that had happened because of how previous 500s had finished but IndyCar has been very clear that they want to finish the race under under a green flag for the fans and they made that very clear in in public um in in the last few years especially when they got you know absolutely caned in previous years for for ending it under a yellow or a, or a you know whatever so um I, I think I'm you know disappointed for Marcus because he probably felt like when he was sat in the car and he crossed the finish line he probably felt like he'd won that race and probably convinced himself that he had uh, and that's a horrible situation to think about for for any driver but I'm also glad that we got a green flag finish and got to see a, a, an overtake on the last lap for the Indy 500 win that was the fourth closest in, in Indy 500 history so that's where I'm at where, where do you want to start with that JR? Yeah I think I'll start by saying I basically agree with everything you said the, oh, great. The, <laughs> yeah so we, it's not going to become like a really contentious <laughs> topic I don't think I thought you were going to start shouting at me 
here on our podcast at least <laughs> um you know i think that i i absolutely agree with with marcus's um you know your assessment of where he's at i feel bad for him too i think that and and that ultimately this all leads to there is enough room in the rule book to have a lot of different scenarios play out and have race control basically just kind of decide on the fly what they want to do i think leaving leaving these things to race control to completely decide on the fly is uh, the in a in a general sense that's kind of not great basically because it just opens you up to it opens the series and the race and you know everybody up to a lot of criticism and and just kind of this just becomes such an enormous topic of conversation that it ends up overshadowing the actual result and the actual thing that happened which was to your point pretty amazing <laughs> and so i think that's the reason in my mind that we should have more clear cut like a more clear cut set of examples or rules or whatever and and that might end up having to be like track specific like you might end up doing things at indianapolis because you've got two and a half miles for the guys to go out and run a pace lap that you wouldn't do at iowa you know so i think that to your point there's there's risk in adding a lot more layers to the rule book in terms of the way this works i think it, as we stand at the moment we're we're kind of too far on the other end of the spectrum where there's a lot, there's, there's too much open-endedness in terms of what the options are here. And that, and so a lot like the conversations that we've had on the pod earlier this season about being kind of surprised and drivers in the moment being surprised that there aren't, aren't penalties being assessed in, you know, on track racing incidents, Pato and uh, Pato and Scott, and then, you know, last year, Alex and Felix and those kinds of situations, the reason that there's so much surprise and there and those ends up becoming these things that create some polarity within the paddock and the industry and, and among the fan base is just because we're sort of moving the, you know, I don't know, moving the benchmark basically in terms of what we're what we're expecting based on previous incidents. And so, yeah, if you watch the 500 last year, I mean, I, you know, I, I said on Twitter, I, when the, when they threw that red, it didn't make sense to me based on what we typically see happen, which is you go out, you get at least one pace lap to just, and at that point, so I'll, 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 I'll kind of shift to the other part of this, which is, so the, the, the feeling of unfairness comes just from everything that we've talked about here, which is it, it just hasn't been done this way before. You know, I guess, and and I guess maybe it had at some, you know, back in the IRL days or something like it's, it's, so it's not like this has never, ever happened, but yeah, I mean, not in this generation of IndyCar racing has, have we had just a green white at the same time, um, with straight out of the pits coming to the green. The other part of this is the safety aspect of it, which, which I'm kind of just tossing that, like, I, I don't think that that's a significant factor here. Um, and, and I say that in, for two reasons. One is to your earlier point, the oval tire is basically made to come in right away. Like it's not, you don't build a lot of temp in it. Like you are, you got cold tires with full fuel coming out of the pit lane and you are, if the wind is like a little bit in your favor, if you got a little bit of a headwind through the turn two, uh, warm up lane, you are probably flat chat all the way out of the pits onto the back straight 
on stone cold tires. Like the tire is just designed to work instantly without having temp in it. So that aspect of it, I think is, is kind of neither here nor there. Um, we don't have enough, we don't have a big enough sample size to really point to cold tires, hot tires, having time to clean off your tires versus not or whatever on a pay slap. I think the reality of it is like I've I've done enough restarts at Indianapolis like there's no uh, sometimes there's just no rhyme or re- it's totally circumstantial whether your tires are in or not by the time you get going um on a restart and that was actually the cleanest of all the restarts basically of the last bunch of them that was the only one that there wasn't an instant yellow basically after a red flag so I I sort of think from that perspective from a driver's point of view that is not something that I would have been thinking about um, rolling up to that, rolling up to that green flag. Um, and so I, I guess I'm okay with having a last lap, a one lap shootout. Um, I'm, I'm okay with the way that they handled this, given the circumstances, uh, some other people have pointed out, they had like a, you know, a bunch of wrecked cars and safety equipment on both sides of the racetrack on the front, on the front straight. So the idea of calling a red there just anyway, that was probably a good safety measure to have taken, basically, rather than running the cars around for two more laps and having a photo at the finish line when there's cars wrecked and safety equipment all over the place. Like that doesn't really make that much sense either. Um, and that, and that ultimately, like if if we're just taking any feeling about who who deserved to win, who should have won, who could have won, like any of those things. If it had ended on the previous caution, you have like a go green, the leader gets passed, instant yellow because there's a crash on the front straightaway. You basically don't even get get to turn one. And like, so that's how you want the race to end? Like, that's not just in terms of if we're just looking at the overall final product here of what happened and what could have happened based on those various scenarios. I, I don't think like one is necessarily kind of better than the other it's just how this race plays out and it's going to have some variability at the end and we've we have certainly gotten ourselves like we are not going to roll back having red flags at the end of the race to try to get a finish under green so i think any of the discussion about rules and regs and precedents going forward need to just be in the context of we're we're going to run 500 miles. It's not going to be more than that. We're not doing some kind of, you know, anybody who says that this seemed very NASCAR-ish, like you need to go watch a, a plate <laughs> race at NASCAR. See how many I'm miles like, they do. Yeah, like it's completely insane compared to what, what just happened here. I think we just, I think for everybody's benefit, we need a little bit more clarity built into how are we going to approach these situations in the future and and at least understand for everybody's sake, like what's on the table there. And, and to build off that, in, in other series, they have the problem that you mentioned about worrying about when you're putting like track-specific things in. So you wouldn't have that at Iowa. So that, that can be a worry for other championships with a rule book, like where they can't really... They, they worry about policing for specific events and things like that. But with IndyCar, the, half the rule book's dedicated specifically to the Indy 500. So there's absolutely no problem that that would be... To, to put an Indy 500 specific rule in there would only be... Yeah, there is already a precedent for having Indy 500 specific rules. So be, that doesn't... Yeah, that doesn't matter. It'd be one of hundreds in the in the rule book that are dedicated specifically to the 500 and all... You know, we have all these things about the 500, like the refresher tests and all these kind of unique things to, to the 500. So to, to have a rule in there that just 
really specified what was going on there, that would be an absolute um, slam dunk for me. I'm glad we agreed on that, JR, even though um, us probably um, shouting at each other over the podcast would have been probably more entertaining for the listeners, but um, it's it's good that we've come to the same conclusion anyway. That's a, that's a good thing. I guess um, we should probably hear what Joseph made of the, the red flag and also Marcus as well. Both of these guys spoke in the post-race press conference about that. So we'll head over now and listen to, to those guys and see what they had to say. What is it about the end that you didn't like? I think it was not enough laps to go to do what we did. I don't think it's safe to go out of the pits on cold tires straight to a restart when half the field is still sort of trying to get out on track when we go green. <laughs> I don't think that that's a fair way to end the race. I don't think it's the right way to end the race. So that's what's, um, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Marcus was unhappy with the call by IndyCar, the way the, the race finished. He felt like there weren't enough laps left, uh, leaving the pits essentially when they were throwing the green. Um, did it surprise you that they made the third red flag call? And um, what did you think about that whole process? Well, I'm happy they did it to give a good finish. You know, obviously, if I was in Marcus's situation, I would have said, yeah, just end it. You know, that's great. I got to the line and... They're not going to go to a, a first. I've also been in a lot of races where you get ahead of somebody like that and the yellow just comes out and you're going back to the timing line of turn four. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We've been sitting here for about five seconds where I'm in front of this person. So there's so many different ways that this could have played out. And you could have said, this is fair. Or that's fair. I've seen it all. And at this point, I'm just really thankful they did it the way they did. I'm glad I had the car. I don't really care. I've seen all, I've seen a lot of situations where it didn't go our way. Today went our way, and I'll I'll take it. I'll take it all day. Really nice from from Joseph. I thought he basically said, you know, if he was in the same position as Marcus, he would be upset about the whole thing. So uh, I guess apart from maybe another incident, we'll get onto in a minute. I think one of the things I took away from this 500 is that I think this is one of the like classiest motorsport fields that I remember either covering myself or being part of for a long time and that starts with Graham Ray Hall being bumped out of the 500 and the interview that he gave after after that race you can go back and listen to our, our qualifying podcast to to hear a little bit more in detail about that um, but but just so much class for someone who's just been bumped out of the 500 and understanding what what that meant and then everything he said and 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 how his team handled his uh, swap to, to Dryan Reinbold replacing Stefan Wilson as well. And, um, you know, then we saw Roman Grosjean talking about how he was like blown away by some of the people who came to visit him in, after his Bahrain crash in, in uh, 2020 in, in Formula One and, and what it meant to, to him for other drivers to come and see him in the hospital. And that's why he wanted to go and visit Steph Wilson himself. Um, and then we come to the end of the 500 where Joseph's just, you know, just won. He's, he's answering questions about winning his first 500. And then someone asks him, you know, how would you feel if you were the other way around? Um, I've got to imagine if I was in Joseph's shoes, I'd be pretty pissed at that point that, that people are not talking about the fact that I've won and they're talking more about the red flag that's finished the the race. And yet Joseph still spoke really nicely about Marcus and, you know, basically showed some some understanding of the situation he was in. And I think that kind of backs up what we were talking about, basically, with the whole thing that, we, you know, it's 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 really fair to for Marcus to be upset about the whole thing. And... and and then flipping that over, Marcus was also really congratulatory of Joseph and said that he, you know, he deserved to win the race. And there was no kind of, you know, he's obviously upset with how it's finished and he, he did criticise how it finished. And you can understand that in the spur of the moment, especially after he was on to break a 21-year record, 21 record of becoming the first double winner since Helio Cachanevez in the early 2000s. So 
um, you can definitely understand why Marcus would be annoyed at that whole situation. But I thought they both handled that really, really nicely. And it was good to hear them say it in their own words. Before we move on, JR, to the rest of the field, kind of wanted to just quickly address Penske. I know at the top of the show, we basically outlined some of the things that they've achieved in in this um, in this you know, result and, and win. Um, I just thought it'd be good to go over and listen to, to Sim, Tim Sindrick talking about that, uh, what I mentioned earlier about him talking about the, the drought at the, uh, at the Speedway because it was quite a funny quote and he, he did give it with a little uh, grin on his face as well. So we'll, we'll head over to, to Tim and, and listen to him uh, address that. The, the gaps in 2019 with, without a victory, how heavily has that weighed upon you and how much, I guess, kind of motivation has that given you to, to turn things around for this year? Well, I think it's great when they talk about four years being a drought here because, hey, you know, I, I see some of the biggest teams here that have, you know, that went on 10 or 11 year droughts or whatever else. So I think it's really a testament to the legacy that, that Rogers built here and, and the expectations we have because, yeah, we do expect to come here and have a shot to win at it every single year. And, you know, unfortunately, we, we haven't been the ones at the front of the race when it starts here in the past couple of years. And I think that's been a bigger weakness um, because, you know, 2019 and prior, I guess I call it the, the pre-windscreen era for whatever reason, whether it's whether that's, uh, you know, uh, basically a coincidence or not. You know, we, we haven't been able to qualify where we are used to qualifying, and it's a little harder to make your day exactly right from the front. You saw today where a couple cars started in the front, you know, had some problems, and we're still able to be at the front at the end of the race. So it's a lot more forgiving if, if you're there in the beginning, and I think that's been the key. All right. Another thing uh, Tim said in that press conference, which was quite funny, was he was asked about uh, Roger Penske's parking spot, which is uh, is is written as number uh, number eighteen at the moment uh, for eighteen wins at the Speedway. Um, even though it's not parking spot number eighteen, it's just they they changed the number of it. Um, but it's uh, someone had asked him if they changed that when when what was what was the timeline of changing that to nineteen? And Tim was like, I hope they're already there down there doing it. They should have been doing it since the, <laughs> since like we crossed the checkered flag. So um, that was quite funny. And also Roger placed the the win almost as high as his 1972 win the first one so not quite as high you've got to think that the 20th which will be the next one to have to go to the top of that list of of Penske's wins even if it's one that's not particularly memorable from a, a race perspective but to when the rest of the field haven't even got double figure wins at the Indy 500 and Roger Roger wins 20 like that's just going to be a that's going to be an absolutely unbelievable uh, statistic to look at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mentioned an incident that we were going to talk about, JR, and that incident would be Marcus Ericsson and Pato Award um, not long before the final red flag. I guess it's, a, it's an interesting one, this one. Pato said that next time he'd take Marcus with him when, uh, <laughs> when he was asked about this in the, in the press conference afterwards. I'm dead interested to get your driver perspective on this, especially um, as you can probably put yourself in the shoes of Pato and Marcus. I think for me, this is Pato's fault, in, in my opinion. Um, uh, I've... I've I've defended Pato on many occasions, and I think I'm, you know, very unbiased when it comes to to Pato. But for this one, I think he's, in my in my opinion, it's just his fault because he pops out so late that I don't think Marcus has a lot of time to adjust to to what he's doing. He's already committed to the corner at that point, and also 
the fact that Pato's front right hits Marcus's rear left shows you that Pato wasn't alongside. It wasn't like he was, you know, level with Marcus or that he was like, you know, already halfway through or, or making that move. It was it was optimistic. And if it had come off, it wouldn't have been one of those amazing moves that we would have been talking about for, for years to come. But the fact that, you know, he has hit Marcus, in, in my opinion, you know, it's lucky Marcus has not been taken out of the race by by that contact at that speed in that corner. And uh, I think um, I think Pato's caused that incident. There's, there's nothing Marcus does there that causes that crash, in, in my opinion. There was enough, you know, if, if Pato hadn't been going too quickly into the corner, there would have been enough room for him to get through the corner, basically. That's that's where I stand on that one anyway. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any problem with what Marcus did there. And I, I think if you're in Marcus's position, basically you just, I mean, I've, I've done that exact, I've, I've made that exact same defensive move uh, to Elio Castroneves in the closing stages of the race in maybe like 20, 2015. Um, and, and Elio, like we made contact, but he wasn't, he was even less far up and so backed out and whatever, like, but just squeezed, squeezed him on the entry there basically as the car that's kind of getting past. Um, and everybody's always like anybody in that situation is always pissed because they've got a big run and they're trying to make their way forward. And, you know, all of that kind of stuff, Elio ended up getting by me a few laps later anyway, in that situation. So it's not like it fundamentally had an enormous impact on his race, but I just think these are the types of situations that, yeah, if you're defending in that way, you know, that you like Marcus knows he knew when he was bending down into the corner that there is some risk that Pato just piles it into the side of him and they both end up crashing. Like that's, you you know, you gotta, you're sort of managing the amount of space that you're giving the guy on the inside. You know, it's, it's reminiscent of Dario Franchitti and, and Taku in 2012 at the end of the race, going into turn one on the other side of the track that in all of these situations, you can see that the car on the outside is not, they're not just driving down to the apex. Like they're, they're actually trying to close you off, but give you enough time and room that you can back out so that you don't both still get in an accident because they don't want to also get taken out. Basically, like as the defending driver in that scenario, you are you are depending a little bit on the other guy to actually get all the way out of the out of the situation. And and Marcus, you know, if that if you do, if you replay that same thing, if that same thing happens ten times, Marcus might might end up crashing just all on his own four or five out of those 10 times. Like you could see that he almost crashed just having to kind of gather it up to the exit of turn three out in the marbles. But I, I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of feel like you can't have it both ways. If you're Pato here, like you can't be the guy that's dive bombing Scott Dixon at long beach and saying like, well, this is totally fine. You know, that I'm taking somebody out and they're no longer in the race. And then, you know, be here at Indy in basically the the same situation. You know, you're making a super late pass, diving into the inside of the corner without being totally alongside. You're playing chicken at that point. You're you're really you. He's depending on Marcus to bail out, like to be hearing his spotter in his ear calling inside, 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 and you know bailing out and giving him the corner. Um, he didn't. He he did leave him enough room to get out of it earlier and not force the issue and you know live to try to make the pass another lap. Uh, so I guess I don't 
I have sympathy for Pato just in that he's kind of had a he's had a bunch of Indy 500s that just didn't quite go enough his way and he was absolutely he was the guy that seemed the most dangerous to me from that point on in the race like he he had the best tires he was in a car that absolutely had the pace to go run at the front um i, I just think in the actual incident that occurred i don't i don't really think i certainly don't think marcus did anything outside of what's totally justifiable based on the way that the whole thing works these days at the speedway at, 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 I mean, just an Indy car generally, but certainly at, at the speedway as a part of that. All right, Joe, I feel like those are the, I, I guess, speaking to Joseph, the, the red flag at the end and the, the Pato Marcus incident are kind of the, the, the huge topics of the race. Um, I guess one of the one we should probably talk about quickly before we get into the rest of the, the rest of the race was the Felix Rosenqvist, Kyle Kirkwood, uh, crash, um, if anything, just as a, a kind of news perspective to kind of update people on in case you saw that crash and were wondering what had happened to the tire that went over the fence. Um, so if you didn't see that, Felix basically lost his car at, at turn three and came back up onto the racetrack and, and hit Kyle Kirkwood's rear wheel, which then immediately just went over the catch fence. And luckily between um, two of the stands, uh, a gap in, in the two stands. So uh, thankfully, no, no, like not heading into the crowd or the spectators or anything. Uh, thankfully, it did land on a, a car in the car park outside and did quite a significant bit of damage and then uh, I found out afterwards which I think is public knowledge and, and being shared around on, on Twitter now that the that Doug Bowles had found the person who owned the car that the wheel hit um, it was a lady for, who, who's fairly local to the to the speedway and actually brought her to the Yard of Bricks and had her take some pictures after the race on, on the Yard of Bricks and then uh, made sure she had a ride home in one of the Chevy Camaros that they have here at the, at the track so that was quite a nice story for, for what was uh, a pretty scary incident. I definitely suggest if you've not watched it, going back and seeing the the onboard from Kyle Kirkwood's car, which was terrifying. Um, I guess JR as a driver, I guess you've seen that. You you watched the the onboard. Um, what what did that feel like as a driver looking at that? I mean, it's a, it's it's the worst possible situation for a driver, isn't it? Being pinned upside down in a car, especially when you've got all the sparks flying into the cockpit, and you could you could hear the fear in Kyle's voice really when when that was going on, and it must have been a really terrifying uh, incident to have happened to you. Yeah, I mean. I guess just from the from the start of the whole thing, breaking down this the incident itself, I thought it was interesting. You know, Felix, the pass that Joseph made on Felix was not that out of the ordinary. I didn't think um, it it looked like Felix just couldn't quite. I mean, in that scenario, you really need to keep your you need to keep some clean air for yourself, at which he, I think, just kind of wasn't able to do. So before he got down to the apex it seemed like he was already picking up understeer from being in the wash of Joseph. Cause I didn't feel like Joseph really chopped him or anything either. Like Joseph kind of gave allowed for there to be some room for Felix to. So I think, I think that'll be something that Felix might kick himself a little bit for not more aggressively, just making sure that he had the car down all the way under the white line, even early in the corner, just to make sure to protect against that happening. Cause once he got into the arrow wash, that was that like, you know, there's, there's kind of no, no coming back from that. So then obviously he crashed. I thought it was, it's, it's so hard to judge these things without a lot more data and information. Um, I'll, I'll just say as like a little nitpick, I've obviously no, I haven't watched the Indianapolis 500 live in 15 years or something on TV. Um, felt like there was a lot of situations where, I mean, just having some like synced audio, for 
green flags on restarts and and some things like that would have gone a long way towards helping because I mean Alexander Rossi after the race talked about how he felt like there was a bunch of jumped like he got jumped on a bunch of starts and I kind of agreed with him like there was a number of scenarios that just when they went to guys on boards without having that extra information of when yellows are coming out when the green flags flying on restarts all these kinds of things like that'd be a nice little among among other things a nice addition um you know the broadcast so like what the you mean like you mean like what the drivers get like on the radio so like when they're told yeah. green yeah because yeah, you're getting a lot of that, like that information yeah. and and so just you know like on restarts this is obviously not the topic that we're talking about so i'll kind of skip through it but <laughs> on on restarts you know you have to stay in line until the green flag flies and then at that point you can do whatever you want and so so if you get the radio saying like there were a, if you get the radio yeah, saying green like flag, then you know then that, it, that it's like literally you know yeah, you're waiting on the spotter yeah and usually you get it as a, you know, secondary kind of like you don't hear race control in the in your earpieces, but the spotter is mic'd up watching the flag stand. So you get it as, as soon as the green flag actually flies. Um, so anyway, that aside, I guess in this Rosenquist Kirkwood situation, it surprised me a little bit that the that. Kyle was still going as fast as he was basically like you look at just the closing rate that he's got on Ferrucci at that point that just that struck me as being pretty significant like how much faster Kyle was going approaching Rosenquist than than Ferrucci who was obviously more kind of immediately tied up in the whole thing but but he had he had obviously had a chance to slow way down at that stage so that I guess was just kind of an interesting caveat to the whole thing um i think we definitely need more information on how that wheel got loose as much as it did and that's i'm sure something that indycar and the speedway and everybody will be i mean rest assured i guess if you're a fan of indycar that this is something that they will figure out because it's i mean that was a a near miss of a potentially like catastrophic situation um you know, and IndyCar takes those types of things for all kinds of reasons incredibly seriously. To actually answer your question about, you know, the kind of onboard from Kirkwood, um, to be totally frank, I've had worse situations than that. Um, the fact that you've got the arrow screen now, I think is a, okay, yes, it kind of, it, it keeps you locked in the cockpit of the car a little bit, but I mean, having been in those situations before without it, I I can tell you that I definitely would have been glad to have had something else that was protecting me from kind of the outside, you know, quote unquote, like outside elements. Um, but it's definitely a scary situation. And any, anytime there's anytime you feel the threat of fire in any kind of circumstance, uh, that definitely concerns you for sure. So, I mean, you can see Kyle kind of looking up to gauge, you know, to sort of gauge like how close is my helmet to the ground? You know, like that's that's basically the thing that you are always wondering in the race car in those situations. Like, is that is that is all that scraping? Is that inclusive of my helmet or something that's attached to me scraping on the ground right now? Um, and so I, you know, I think that this will be something that he uh like like most race car race car drivers gets over pretty quickly, but but yeah, you know. I think uh, a huge, we are so lucky in the IndyCar series as race car drivers to have the AMR safety team because there is unquestionably nobody better in motorsports at, at doing what they do. And, 
you know, I think that the the fear that you kind of have in those moments prior to the car coming to a halt is in every situation almost immediately met with relief because there's a safety crew member there just, you know, as soon as the car stop comes to a stop, basically there's somebody there already. So, um, you know, I, I guess I'd, I'd wrap all that up by just giving a huge shout out to those guys and that team and the commitment that IndyCar has made to making that such a huge part of the safety sort of system um, at Indianapolis in particular. It's amazing when you consider how much money is a motorsport these days that almost every elite championship doesn't have a professional band of, you know, medical. I think it like the, I mean, it's something I've written about this before, um, you know, in the context of F1, like the, that, that any that all of these big championships don't have something exactly like what IndyCar has is just uh, to me, blasphemous, like completely insane that that doesn't, that that doesn't exist. Like you, uh, you know, and, and I talked about this last in the context of Roman's cra- you know, fiery crash at Abu Dhabi that like, if that doesn't, if that, if that exact same incident happens and it's not the first lap of the race, he's a goner. And because the, the only thing that helped was that the safety car happened, like the, the medical car happened to be following the field right there. Like if it takes another, whatever, like 30 seconds or something in a lot of those types of situations for that kind for, to, for you to get help. Um, it's just, it's, I mean, it blows my mind that you'd leave something like that up to chance and, and IndyCar, we have this because just our perspective on safety is that it is inevitable that there is going to be giant accidents at some point in the IndyCar series. And so in a way, because of that, IndyCar has developed a much more robust just system of safety, basically, for everywhere you go. Yeah, there there are a lot more accidents. There's a lot more heavy accidents in IndyCar than there are in Formula One. But, um, you know, the the quality of the outcomes speaks for itself. Absolutely. Let's move on to, uh, I guess, a good way to do this now. We need to crack through the field quite extensively with a lot of storylines to talk about. So uh, I guess one of the things that we've done for the race, um, the high from race.com uh, for all your features and news following the Indy 500 is break it down into winners and losers, basically. So I'll run through a few of these guys and then I'll get your thoughts on a few of them, JR, some of the bigger storylines or, or ones that you'll be especially uh, good to, to chat to about. First one being Alex Pillow. Um Obviously started on pole. We were expecting him to be um, in the fight for the win. Unfortunately, he was hit by Renus VK in the in the pit lane. Um Renus, I guess, lost it under under power and then kind of speared uh, Pillow into the into the wall. I, I thought at that point he was out of the race, but um he, he got back onto the track. I think he was um the broadcast said that he'd come from like twenty eighth or twenty seventh to, to where he was, but that was, don't think that was the case because of the especially going back through the lap chart anyway, he was counted at twenty second, I think, when the field went green. So it wasn't quite as far as the, the T V broadcast said that he'd come, but um worked his way well up to I think it was seventeenth before the, the next pit stop. So he'd, he'd done a great job to to move forward and, and continue to move forward uh, to the point where he finished the race in, in fourth. So really sensible uh, strategy, very, very, very good pit stops as usual from Ganassi and just kind of picking people off as and when he could and was obviously helped by the field continuously being stacked back up again for him to have another another go at the next person in in the line so um but the the, the major major thing for that was that it made sure that alex kept the lead of the championship so at the point where he's speared into the wall by renus and he's he's 22nd or, or wherever he is at that point um you've got to be thinking that marcus is going to take over the lead of the championship at that point uh, based on where where the results are so uh, alex's fight back through the field was absolutely uh 
absolutely vital in making sure that he's still in the lead of the championship exit in the 500. So he was definitely one to point out. Callum Eilert was another one I wanted to mention after we had him on the show. We had quite a few people messaging in saying how good Callum had been on the podcast, explaining his trials and tribulations where he had to switch to a backup car on the Friday before qualifying started. He had, I think it was 11 or 12 laps in the car, uh, whereas everybody else had had days of practice to, to get it right and manages manages to to qualify the car and then leads the Indy 500, which was a, a really cool story for, for him. It might have been on a bit of an alternate strategy situation and he, he obviously fell back quite quickly once... Uh, once he'd, he'd started at the front on, on the restart that he did, but um, still managed to de- deliver a 12th place, which I think if, you, if you'd have told him on that Friday when they were swapping the car that he was going to finish 12th and lead the Indy 500, I think he would have laughed in, in your face. So um, that was another brilliant storyline. And then your old team, AJ Foyt as well, had a, a fantastic month. I feel like we've talking, talked about them on, on all of the previous podcasts that we've mentioned this month, really, for, for good reason. They've been fantastic all month. But uh, I, I guess the maybe the one question mark going into the race, Joe, I was whether they would be able to back up the qualifying form in the race and Santino had basically spent the whole month saying that his race car was better than his qualifying car but you always wonder with conditions changing or, or things being you know different in the race whether you know that's actually going to be the case but um, especially Santino anyway I know Benjamin Pedersen had a, a pretty difficult race uh, from from starting 11th on the grid and, and fell back and was part of the the second to last crash that we saw with uh, Ed Carpenter and I think it was Christian Lungard was the other driver involved in that crash but Santino really showed up for the team and, and delivered a, a pretty sensational performance I guess where where do you kind of, where does your mind kind of sit now after the race kind of seeing what they were able to achieve and um, the, the kind of breakthrough that they've had yeah I mean I think that this is what I expected them to be able to do on race day based on watching practice and qualifying so you know I think that 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 group of guys in the pit lane is is extremely good and and extremely determined also uh, they wanted to be able to I think they they feel like they've been busting their asses to to sort of do this type of do this type of thing and perform for AJ Foyt Racing for several years now. It's a group of guys on the 14 car that's been together more or less as a group um, for a little while, kind of through a lot of you know the the maybe recent downturn basically of of where AJ Foyt Racing has been, just in terms of you know not really being able to not really being able to produce these kinds of results. So I think they looked at behind the scenes. There was a lot of guys there that looked at this as an opportunity to basically showcase what they feel like they've been bringing to the table as mechanics and crew members for a long time. Um, you know, and, and we talked about it earlier with, with Canon and kind of a revamped, I don't know, uh, commitment to the prep that goes into this place you know, you don't, you don't lose that suddenly going into race day, basically. So I think that, you know, you, it, it, the 14 car in particular looked like one throughout practice that particularly if it was running up front, it was going to be able to stay up there and, um, you know, they didn't make any mistakes. They, you know, the, the 14, it, it surprised me a little bit that they were early in the race. He and Polo looked like they could potentially be putting themselves a little bit on the back foot heading into if they if there wasn't that you know lap 90 whatever yellow that they were working themselves into a position where they were kind of five or six laps different than other cars on the lead strategy in terms of when they were pitting that that could potentially have at some point caught them out or put them on the back foot in terms of then really needing to save a lot of fuel to hang with the 
Arrow McLaren cars in particular, you had Rosenquist and Pato that were going the longest of the rest of that lead group um, at the beginning and really started to separate themselves without losing any track position, basically. Um, so, but ultimately the yellow, that mid-race yellow, that first yellow kind of evened everybody out. And at that point, I mean, I I absolutely expected Santino to just stay in the mix at that point because that was really all he had to do and it was just going to come down to where they were at, but that was a fast car, um, all month long. So they had kind of had everything they needed to be able to compete at the end. And like Joseph and I'm sure Marcus, you know, would have agreed that some of those restarts just go a little differently. And I mean, probably that second to last restart, if they just make it to turn one, Santino's leading the race. So, um, you know, I can definitely, a, a huge kudos to Larry and the crew, over there for doing the things that they needed to do to to get to this point it's those are things that not everybody ends up doing every year even if you know you have to absolutely i guess we'll swing to the opposite end of the spectrum then and and the losers we've covered mclaren in quite a bit of detail but just basically wanted to point out that that's a team that led over 70 laps of this race between the the three guys who led laps um the the one who we've not really mentioned that much was obviously Alexander Rossi, who finished fourth in the race, which was a, a good result for him after two difficult Indy 500s with Andretti, the, the last two. So um, I'm sure if you'd asked him at the start of the race, he'd probably want to win it. But being in the top five is not a bad thing either. And good again for, for his points. He's up to seventh in the championship now. And it feels like he's had quite a bit of adversity at the first part of the year with this new team already. And the, the fact that they're seventh is, you know, seems to be an encouraging sign. I don't remember him being that high in the championship um, at this point in the season, at least for for a little while now, especially in the, the Aero's Green era, I guess. So um, props to him. And we should also mention Tony Canon, who finished his Indy 500 career, or so he says. Um, he, he might come back. We, we, we never really know of Tony, but uh, he's adamant that he's leaving and that the the ovation that he got from the, the 300 fans here, 300,000 fans here, has um, you know kind of sent him on his way. We should also mention Andretti, I think, because I think they're one of the kind of underrated, really, stories of the race, because I think at least in my opinion anyway looking through the month that Kyle Kirkwood at least had a car that was definitely capable of being up there um, and we saw in the race it was actually Colton Herter who got up there first which was uh, probably a bit of a surprise to some people based on him starting a little bit further back but um, they both had really good cars by the look of things and then Colton overshot his pit box and was released directly into Roman Grosjean Roman Grosjean then crashed and he was quite far down the order anyway Marco Andretti had dropped down the order really early on and, and was was struggling, I think maybe with a tyre vibration at first, but then struggled to, to make his way back up. Um, Devlin had had, uh, you know, relatively relatively decent race in, in 13th, but um, yeah, the big losses there were definitely uh, Kirkwood's crash, obviously, while he was running in the, in the top six um, and maybe a little bit higher on kind of net strategy at that point. Um, and, and Colton, who was, you know, well on his way to, to fighting for the win, I think, there. Um, you know, before before his in- incident. So maybe one of the, uh, I guess we've got so used to uh, this kind of Andretti performance where they have fast cars and don't deliver it on, on race day. So maybe people are a bit numb to it now, but I was definitely surprised to not hear people, you know, talking a little bit more about them and, and what they could have done in this race because it, in many ways, probably their best 500 was quite a, quite a long time um, in terms of the pace that they showed and, and the fact that they probably could have could have been there at the end. Uh, I guess Will Powell's another one to mention. He was on the podium last year, but uh, this race just seemed to go wrong for him from pretty much the beginning. He was weight jacker broke, and then he he'd brushed the wall and bent the suspension, so he ended up the race um, five laps down. And then the rookies we've already mentioned, ben, Benjamin Pedersen. He was um, he was involved in that crash at the end. We had Augustin Canapino who's caught up in um, Scott McLaughlin and, and Simon Pagano's crash. 
so that was that was a bummer. Um, we had Stingray Rob crash out, obviously. Um, he got very angry at Graham Rahal for that, which I couldn't really understand. But that was that was his opinion. And RC Ennison also um, had some sort of uh, mechanical gremlin that uh, Able Motorsports is not telling people about. So not really sure what happened there, but um, it was a mechanical issue. Anyway, JR, any of those really stand out to you that you wanted to talk about? No, I think, uh, you know, the McLarens, I, I definitely... I actually thought I, I I guess just some some little I don't know nuanced parts of all of that. I really enjoyed Alexander Rossi's post race interview on TV. Like just the attitude that he had about it was so not that you'd expect something other than this from him. So it wasn't it wasn't because it was something different than what I anticipated getting from Alexander Rossi. But just for somebody who just finished fifth, like definitely. I, would have had plenty of reason to think that they had a car and kind of should have been more in the hunt for the thing, but just kind of weren't and didn't really have things go their way. He just gave such a sane interview after all that was done. And and I think went to show the actual perspective that you can have in the race of all of the things that are going on, particularly as they're, as it seems like chaos going into the end of the race. So I, I just want to give him a little shout out for like, you know, putting some putting some well earned context into how the race played out and and the disappointment that you kind of have in those kinds of situations, even when you do finish well. I think it just it came across very genuine and and made a lot of sense to me. I felt I kind of felt for him, just like yeah, it's just one of those days. You know, like that was basically where he where he was at with it, and I think ruining the opportunity that his teammates could have had and that they might all have had together had things gone a little differently yeah i, I thought he might come and find me in the media center and blame me for picking him as my race winner that I'd somehow <laughs> jinxed him or something maybe that it was gonna be my fault but my uh my dark horse was new garden just to put that out there so i was pretty pleased with that one yeah the uh you know the the other part of it is is yeah the andretti cars i i think i'm, I'm gonna take like a little bit of a different a different take on this which was like that that Colton Herta situation in the pit lane uh, along with Renus in in the in the pit lane those are just like like those are just the and I, I don't say this as a as a fan or as a fellow driver really just thinking about it in the context of being being within those teams and having been in teams where you have things like that that sort of take you out of those races like you just cannot have that happen you know, like that just that's one of those things that unfortunately and and I'm not if Colton Arenas listen to this, like this is not something that they don't already know. So I don't feel I don't really feel bad about it. Like your teams are just super pissed that that's that that's basically how your race, you know, has essentially ended, like whether it actually ends your race or not takes you completely out of contention. Um, You know, these are these are things that you just like got to be able to avoid that happening and and so it's it, it was frustrating for me watching those things happen not because i'm necessarily even rooting for either of those guys over something else but it like you know to to have guys that are genuinely in contention just take themselves out of it and obviously in renus's scenario you're taking out below like it's just it's just got to be avoidable you know i mean you see you see how tightly tight the pit lane is you know, in that in that exact same replay that you saw renus and renus end up Taking Pelo and himself basically out of contention. You saw Alexander Alexander Rossi had almost the exact same thing happen 
a few cars further back, but managed to just get out of the throttle and save it, save himself from crashing and save himself from crashing into somebody else. It's just kind of like, this is not rocket science to be able to make it out of the pit lane. Uh, it is, it is difficult. Like there's no question that those are, it is super tight. The tires are cold. The fronts aren't working worth a damn at that point. They have no temp in them. I mean, I don't want to take away kind of how difficult doing these things is in those situations, but it's just for, for guys, I guess I, for guys of that caliber to have those kinds of issues or, or teams to have those kinds of issues. I, we don't really know what, what the situation was with Colton. It sort of seemed like his right front guy was maybe trying to hold it. Yeah. I thought that as well, but we don't know what, we don't know what's being said over the radio. So that's usually, that typically is the thing that you're in the, in the, in the cockpit. That's the thing that you're going off of is, are you being told to go or not? Um, you know, so without that information, it's hard to really assess any blame, but just a bummer. I, I guess ultimately just like a bummer, even as a, as a fan watching the race to have those things happen and, and not have more of those contenders in the mix at the end. Yeah. You get three cars that should be fighting for the win that are taken out immediately. It's really disappointing. I, I guess the pits always bite at, at India. We had Catherine Legg as well. She did the same thing as Renus, but, um, was extremely lucky because the the one good thing about Renus is was that the only the only person that could get hurt in that situation was Alex and his car. Whereas with Catherine's, if there was a pit crew in the next stall, like she would have cleaned, she would have wiped them out. So, um, you know, the pits are dangerous at Indy, and it's a it's a difficult one. We saw with Christian Lungard as well, who went into the wrong pit box and then tried to drive out of the pit box and then back into his pit box, but like smashed into the tire of the guy. Uh, I think it was Harvey's pit crew. He hit the hit the tire and luckily didn't hit the the guy changing the tire so that was another one that was yeah it, we 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 really hammered home in the last podcast i think how important pit stops would be in the in the indy 500 and this is you know one of one of the areas where maybe we didn't talk about as much as the mistakes the, the big mistakes that can actually it's, it's not just about the the couple of seconds that you might win or lose in the pits it's about ending your whole day as well at the same time so um yeah that was definitely a, a theme of the day thanks jr for joining us um thanks again to joseph newgarden for making the time for us as well for, for so soon after the race and after taking a million pictures on the yard of bricks with various sponsors and all that other good stuff that I'm sure he's probably ready to get rid of now and head to the, I think he's heading to the NASDAQ tonight. He's heading to New York tonight after the, uh, after the winner's banquet at the 500, which is a, a big tradition here. So that's good. Um, JR will be back uh, next week, next Monday to talk about Detroit, which is uh, something that we probably should have talked about a little bit more on this podcast, but we're kind of running out of time. Um, just to mention that it's going looks like it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal event for all the, everything that they've put into it. It's in downtown Detroit where the old Formula One circuit used to be. It's got a weird split pit lane. It's going to be fascinating to see how that works in the, over the course of the weekend, whether it's going to be a success or whether it's going to be a, not a success. Um, and the, the track looks really tight and twisty. So I think qualifying is going to be absolutely vital there. So we'll keep an eye on, on that as well. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.